Well, Skip. Well, Chip. What was it like being at the president's house? Well, just to prove I was there, I want to just show you what I have here. I have this little napkin. Can you see that, Moses? <laughs> I see that. I'm showing that to Moses right now. It's a little napkin. It's in the restroom. When I got into the White House, the, it's, it's an odd thing, but I, as soon as I got into the White House, I asked the guard, is there a restroom here? Not because I wanted this, because I needed to use the restroom. But <laughs> while I was in there, I noticed that these are the towels that you just wash your hands with, and it says on it, seal of the President of the United States. So I took one. And then I asked if it was okay, and of course it was. I didn't steal from the government or anything. I want you, but it proves I was there. It's a listen, time. it was a great experience, yeah. actually, to yeah. be there. Um, you should frame that. Sh I should frame should the frame that. That's bathroom that's napkin. Okay, well, maybe I will. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it was honest. It was an honor. I mean, it was almost unbelievable. Um, and it was a small group that met. Uh, we met early in the morning for a briefing with White House staff. Uh, we went to Capitol Hill and uh, met with the majority leader, Senator uh, Bill Frist, who is the only surgeon in the Senate and a strong believer. And um, we voiced our concerns about the Hyde Amendment, the, the bill that is uh, on the President's desk and before Congress. But what was really neat is after we were done having that meeting, all of us in the Senate quarters, uh, Capitol Hill, we bowed our heads and we prayed. And we prayed for our nation, we prayed for this bill, we prayed for the President, and uh, it was just a really wonderful time. Well, Skip, when you talk about divine appointments, uh, Bill Frist, you have some background with. He's an unexpected majority leader, and yet you've uh, spoke with him elsewhere. Right. We shared a conference together at the Cove in North Carolina for a, a Samaritan's Purse prescription for renewal, sending doctors out all over the world. And he's been a surgeon uh, in Africa helping personally with patients with AIDS. So here's somebody as the majority leader in the Senate who has firsthand experience and knowledge of the issue. And it was neat to meet with him. And then, of course, after that, we went to the White House. And we were supposed to be in the Rose Garden, but we were rained out. So we met in the White House, which is even cooler because as we're in the foyer, you know, all the rooms are open. So I just kind of moseyed from one room to the next, and it was very cool. Well, you were there for a... And a I got a napkin. <laughs> you were there for a very serious purpose, though. Right. Tell us about that. There is a bill, and it is on the president's heart and agenda to do something about the most serious crisis facing modern humanity, and that's the AIDS virus. You know, there's nothing like it. Just to frame the gravity of the situation, we're talking about a disease that 20 years ago, if you were in a hospital in Africa, if you asked a doctor, is there somebody here, one of your patients, with the AIDS or with HIV virus. They would say, oh no, we don't have anybody here. We have barely even heard of that. And then about five years after that, 15 years ago, if you ask the same question, they may be able to show you one uh, that had it. That's about it. Today, things have changed. 15 years later, 43 million people are infected with that virus. So I know we talk about SARS and people are scared about touching things and traveling and breathing, but we're talking about something that makes SARS look like a walk in the park. It's not an overstatement to say it's a worldwide plague. It's a pandemic. It, it is estimated to be worse than the Black Plague of the 12th century. It will do incredible damage. And here's the, here's the issue. It's not just people that are infected with it. And by the way, there are more heterosexual 
spread, much more uh, heterosexual spread now than any other way, especially in developing nations. Um, we're not just talking about the people that have the disease, but their families. For every person that's infected, there's a whole group of people affected by it. Um, it's estimated in the next few years there will be 50 million AIDS orphans. 50 million AIDS orphans. So it is a huge, huge problem. Well, that's big numbers, but we need to bring it down personally as to people we come in contact with who may be, as you say, infected or affected by it. Right. Well, I want to do that. We have a guest here tonight we want to introduce to you who was a nurse that had a very interesting, sobering uh, experience, and she has worked with AIDS patients, and uh, I'm glad she's here tonight. Gloria. Gloria Medina. Come on up, Gloria. We got to talk a little bit before the service, and uh, Thank you. Gloria, you had a story. First of all, um, you're a caregiver. You know what it's like to take care of people and see them suffer. Yes, I do. And you love doing it, it seems, I from love talking nursing. to you. I love nursing, yes. And it's the greatest thing I've ever done. And I can relate to that because of my background in the medical profession, but also my mom was a nurse. Oh, and uh, there's just a special heart of somebody who wants to be in that profession and care for people. Um, would you just tell us about uh, what you do, what you were doing specifically in that experience uh, that you had with, with an AIDS patient, is that right? That's correct. I was um, working in the ICU unit. I was orienting to that unit, actually. And we were removing an IV line from an AIDS-infected patient. And at the time that I removed it, uh, we were needing to also culture the tip of the line. And as I pulled it out, it recoiled and um, came up under my glasses and whipped into my eyes. So the blood, the infected blood from this patient got into your... Into my eyes into and into eyes. my nose, yes. So what, yes. what did you do at that point, as soon as that happened? Um, they rushed me to the restroom and, of course, flushed my eyes out. Um, they had me call the infectious disease nurse, and she came and did lab, lab tests on me to do a baseline of where I was. They immediately took me to the emergency room and started me on two of the uh, HIV drugs, the AIDS drugs. Now, during those moments, what thoughts were going through your mind? My husband, my sons. Um, you were thinking this could be a fatal experience. This, this, I thought this was it. I did. I did. It was, it was so scary. Um, I knew this man was very sick. I knew his viral load was really high. And... Um, I didn't know if my sons were going to be orphans and my husband was going to be a widow. And they did tests on you. They ran those tests and they, they found that you're, you're negative. Is that's that right. That's right. Um, 28 days later, they went ahead and ran some lab tests and they did what's called a PSR, which checks the protein in the DNA. And it's such a sensitive test that within uh, 10 days, it will tell you whether or not you even have a DNA strand within your, wow. your body. Glory, did you ever have second thoughts at that point about being a caregiver, about being a nurse at that point? I was scared um, at the time it happened, but I realized um, after being scared and having, um, I had a friend here who, who of course let the pastors know and everyone was praying for me and just my own friends were praying for me and it helped me to realize that the Lord was in control. It was nothing, it, it surprised me. It was not anything I expected for myself. It was even, it wasn't anything I even 
thought could happen to me. I was, I was protected, I was wearing glasses, I was wearing gloves. Um, but the Lord knew that it was, it, he knew it was gonna happen. It didn't come as a surprise to him. Right, it shocked you, but of That's course correct. God d never panics. That's right. And he was in control and you found that to be true. That's you, right. You had not only that frightening experience, but you were telling me about another experience, I think with the same patient, that at first was kind of, uh, maybe you didn't connect with, but then toward the end before he uh, right. died. Right, the day that, the first day I took care of him, he was, as you'll find most, most of the time in AIDS patients, because of the stigma I think that's attached to it, they, um, there's a lot of shame that goes with it. And I had taken care of him that day, and he didn't, um, he didn't respond to me a lot. He would look away, he wouldn't really look at me. And um, just a few hours before this incident happened, I um, w had wiped some saliva off his face because he was intubated. And um, he reached out, he looked at me, and he reached his hand out and he squeezed my hand. And I knew that he knew why I was doing it. Right. And I felt like we had touched. And uh, yeah, unfortunately this man did die um, about three hours later. And that's something that's the sobering truth. There's, there's drugs that are out there. There are uh, the uh, antiretroviral medications that don't cure, but they do retard the process. But that's what we have to realize is there is no cure. Um, anybody infected with this disease will die. They haven't found a cure yet. And we talk about numbers, but you hit on something that we should remember. It's not just 42 million people. These are 42 million, 43 million souls for whom Jesus Christ shed his blood and loves. And, you know, the church has sort of been silent over this issue uh, worldwide, nationwide. Um, and yet, uh, as far as showing the love of Christ, it's time to step up to the plate. That's right. And the medications that people take, the antiviral medications, they are harsh and awful medications. And um, these people not only have HIV, but they're suffering with uh, the results of the drugs. They have no normal life. These are terrible, terrible drugs, and I know that because I took them, and um, mm. they got me sick. I couldn't even eat, and wow. so these are people that go through these medications, and they go through different cocktails until they die. So, Gloria, you have a whole different approach now, having not only worked with, but having taken the same drugs. Oh, yeah. You can really connect and empathize in yes. a way that... Yes, Nobody else really can. You know, I, I've had contact with patients and ministered to them and watched them to go through the process, and I've done their funerals, and it is a horrible way to die, isn't it? It's just a slow, very painful, painful death. death. Yes. And um, they do feel often alienated and isolated from people who often don't know what to say or how to deal with it, especially to give love in those crucial moments. That's right. That's right. And... Um, like I was saying earlier that we're gloved up, we have gowns on, and these are the people that probably need the human touch so much more than anyone else. Well, you know, I think now's a good time. Um, we're bringing this to the forefront tonight, uh, fresh on my own experience at the White House yesterday, but we're going to be doing more and more in the future. We want to get very proactive in this, in the community and in the nation and in the world. Um, uh, you know, here's a neat thing, is that it, the worst... Um, the worst case scenario of all that we've talked about in terms of deaths, the numbers, Chip, that you alluded to in Africa, what's really wonderful is that in these places, the Church of Jesus Christ is strong. There's a network of believers in all over the world, and uh, 
with uh, the initiative in the, in the White House is to get faith-based organizations, churches, Christian organizations, to um, be very proactive in this. So we're hoping that uh, uh, that comes about, that the right. government really gets involved. But uh, I have a quick question for you, Gloria. Yes. AIDS has been likened to modern-day leprosy. How do we overcome the reluctance to touch, to really reach out to those individuals? I think we have to trust that everything is in the Lord's hands, of course, and um, not be, we just can't be afraid to love these people. Um, I, I think I, I, um, any fear I had of it has kind of been healed from it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. God, God right. bless you. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. You know what? Before we, before we finish off and uh, close with a song, w would you lead us, Glory, in, a, in prayer just for the Lord's wisdom that we would know what to do as His people during this, uh, this opportunity? Lord Jesus, we um, lift up to you every person that's infected with AIDS and HIV out there, Lord. There's always someone to pray for, Lord. There's always someone who's hurting, not just the not just the person themselves, but also the family who's affected by this. Lord Jesus, we also pray for the, your health care workers, Lord, for the doctors and nurses and everyone else involved in health care that deals with these people. And Lord, I especially uh, pray for nurses, Lord. Right now there's such a shortage and it makes, it makes these times even more dangerous because we're trying to do things faster. Lord, I would just ask that you would um, raise up nurses, Lord, um, that will want to serve and want to take care of the sick people that are in the world. Amen. 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 Gloria, thank you thank for you coming. What happens when there is change in leadership? In the case of Israel, Absalom and David, the room at the top created by the end of the rebellion led to interesting events that we can learn from and apply to our personal business and spiritual lives. A vacuum in leadership when there is room at the top. That's our topic tonight as we proceed through the studies of 2 Samuel and turn in our Bibles to the 19th chapter in our teaching tonight, studying the Old Testament, line on line. Well, okay, okay then. If you could turn, 2 Samuel, chapter 19. Well, we have met some pretty interesting folks, haven't we, in this book? Remember their names? Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul. Names you probably never huh, cared about. Mephibosheth, Ittai the Gittite, Hushai the Archite, George the termite? No, he's not a part of it. <laughs> you know, all those odd names, and I've said this before, but you know, you want to think about naming your children. Well, I just dare somebody here to take one of those names and name their next child like Mephibosheth. I just think it would be cool. Dedicate Mephi. <laughs> I'm going to begin tonight in chapter 19, but the thought actually begins in verse 33 of chapter 18. That's where we're going to begin. Let me just frame this a little bit for you. Yesterday was an exciting day, as we talked about, in Washington, D.C. It's, it's an enjoyable place to visit, and especially the, the honor of uh, helping give input 
into uh, legislation and a bill and um, being summoned to uh, give advice, counsel, don't know what they'll do with it, but still, it was an honor. Being in the White House was great. And um, when the president finished saying what he said and he walked out with Colin Powell, uh, I was sort of uh, managed to get toward the back and follow him out. And I didn't, of course, like follow him into his office or anything, but as I, as I watched, I got a picture that's still in my mind and I'll never forget it. To see the back of the president and his aide advisor walking together through the White House, through the halls, past the paintings of past presidents, some that were done over a hundred years ago. But one that interested me is he walked right by a painted portrait of his father, who was the 41st president of the United States, and now he's the 43rd president. And just to capture that picture in my mind of this president following, in a sense, in the great legacy of his father, who was also president of the United States, like father, like son, very literally. He's his own man. He is there by his own merits. It's not a dynasty that was passed down. He had to be voted in, and you know how the election was close and all, but there he is. A father and a son who share really the same heart as leaders for a nation. As I saw that, as he disappeared on the other side of the hallway threshold, I thought of another picture that I saw this time on the television. It was the week of 9-11-2001. Billy Graham was preaching in the Washington Cathedral, and after him, the president spoke. But when the president sat down, his father, the 41st president of the United States, George Bush Sr., grabbed his son's hands and squeezed it, as if to say, I'm grieving with you, son. I'm here with you. Now, I contrast that to this father and son in leadership, the king of a nation, King David, the would-be king of a nation, Absalom, who tried hard to usurp and steal that position, now dead. And as that picture is in my mind, the good picture of a father grieving with a son, I compare that here to a father grieving for his son. And what deep grief it is. It is the story of a dead son, a grieving father, a divided nation, and a perhaps insensitive, albeit pragmatic, friend. That frames this chapter. Then the king was deeply moved, we read here, and went up into the chamber over the gate, and he wept. Deeply moved means he was bitter in soul. A literal translation would read, he trembled. Can you picture that father mourning the death of his son? His son. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, 
If only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. I have an article I want to share with you that it's important enough for me it was to cut out and read to you. Because David is doing something that anyone would do given the same set of circumstances. Your child, your brother, your mother, your father, if you've ever lost someone to death, you know what it's like to mourn, to grieve. However, we live in a very interesting culture, America. Culturally, we have a tough time dealing with death, knowing how to deal with it. You'd think after all that we've accomplished and all of the many technologies that we have exploited, that we'd have a better handle when it comes to dealing with emotions. This it comes from a book by John James and Frank Cherry. It's a book on grief recovery. And it traces the story of a boy named Johnny. When five years old, Johnny's dog dies. Johnny is stunned. He bursts out crying. His dog was his constant companion. It slept to the foot of his bed. Now the dog is gone. And little Johnny is a basket case. Johnny's dad stammers a bit and says, uh, Don't feel bad, Johnny. We'll get you a new dog Saturday. In that one sentence, Johnny's dad is really offering the first two steps in our society's grief management program. Bury your feelings and replace your losses. Once you have the new dog, you won't even think about the old dog anymore. Later, when Johnny falls in love with a high school freshman girl, the world never looked brighter until she dumps him. Suddenly a curtain covers the sun. Johnny's heart is broken. This time it's a big hurt. It's not just a dog. This is a person his heart was fixed on. Johnny is a wreck. But mom comes to the rescue this time and says with great sensitivity, don't feel bad, John. There are other fish in the sea. There it is again. Bury the pain. Replace the loss. Johnny has steps one and two down pat now. He'll use the rest of them the rest of his life. Much later, John's grandfather dies, the one he fished with every summer and fell close to. A note was slipped to him in math class. He read the note, and he couldn't fight off the tears. He broke down sobbing on his desk. The teacher felt uncomfortable about it and sent him off to the school office to grieve alone. When John's father brought him home from school, John saw his mother weeping in the living room. He wanted to embrace her and cry with her, but his dad said, Don't disturb her. She needs to be alone, John. She'll be all right in a little while. Then the two of you can talk. The third piece in this grieving puzzle was now making sense to John. Grieve alone. So he went into his room to cry alone, and he felt a deep sense of loneliness. Let's review. Bury your feelings. Replace your losses. Grieve alone. Let time heal. Live with regret. Never trust again. I know this to be true from people that I deal with throughout my year 
dealing with grief and loss. That is not the best way to handle it. It is society's method. It is not spiritually, nor is it mentally healthy. David needs to grieve. David doesn't need to be alone. David needs to work through this process. He doesn't need to replace it. But there is a conflict of emotion that he has to deal with. He is a leader. Joab is more pragmatic. He's not the, the most sensitive character, but he knows that the nation at this point needs a strong leader. Now watch this. Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it, and they said, The king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face. And the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Here's the conflict. The uprising, the coup, is over with. That, that means victory. That means celebration. The nation won the victory, but the king has lost his son. And he has to deal with both emotions. As a leader, he's gotten the victory, but as a father, he's lost his boy. What do you do? What do you need at a time like that? Well, you need a lot of stuff. When there is a loss, you can expect things to happen. I, I notice something about Christians. We get funny around people who are grieving and mourning. We don't know what to deal with. And we, we get shocked when we hear what comes out of their mouth sometimes. Usually the first emotion that accompanies deep loss is denial. You're told, so-and-so is dead. No! No! Couldn't have happened. I don't believe it. Not true. And you're hoping against hope. It's just a false report. It's a mistake. Then you come to grips. It's not a mistake. Second emotion that accompanies anger. I don't know if you've ever been around people who've had deep personal loss, but there's a deep anger that is, uh, comes from deep within. I've seen people get mad at God. How could you? I've heard of people getting mad at the people who have died. Now, you might think that's funny, but it is not. They're angry. How could you leave me? Then angry at themselves. How could I have let you go that night? I should have stopped you and not let you gone out the door. After denial, after anger, there's deep depression that can last for some time. Deep, dark, silent period of grief. I have found that profound words don't really help a lot. Let me tell you, explain to you the purpose of suffering. That doesn't go very far during that time. What they need more than your words is your presence, your love, your touch. Eventually, after all these emotions are played out, comes hope. Hope will come, but it is a process. And the worst thing to do is try to replace the loss by doing something else, staying busy, refusing to talk about it, refusing to weep with someone. No, no, no. You need to face it. You need to process it. You need to talk about it. 
And if you're dealing with somebody who has lost somebody, bring it up. Let's talk about him. Let's talk about your son. What was he like? Let's bring back those memories. Let's work through that process. I've discovered that people who lose loved ones love to talk about their loved ones. It does hurt, but there's healing mixed with it. And it gives that person an opportunity to process it. Well, Joab is, again, he's not the most sensitive guy. You've already discovered that about him, haven't you? He likes to, like, kill people who he doesn't like and take things in his own hands. Now, it's partially his fault, isn't it? There was a strict command, save my son. Whatever you do, deal gently with my son. Joab could care less. This was a crisis. Kill him, he said. Kill him. And he did personally. Because Joab sees this not just as a spat between dad and son, but a national crisis. So he gets very personally involved. Now he is told the king is, he's crying, man. He's weeping. We, we don't need a weeper, they, they say. We need a leader. Joab seems to concur. Joab came to the house where the king, to the king and said, Today you have disgraced your servants, who today have saved your life. The lives of the sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines. It's true. Here's the rub. You've got a king who needs to grieve. He's deeply emotional. Understandably so. It'd be great if the text said somebody was there to wrap his arms around him, process it with him, talk it over with him. Joab could have done that, but he doesn't do it. He does bring up an issue, though. King, I know he's your son, but he was your enemy, the enemy of the nation, and all of your soldiers won a victory. And the way you're acting, you're going to put a negative shadow on their morale and their loyalty. Now follow this. In that you love your enemies, verse 6, and hate your friends, for you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants, for today I perceive if Absalom had lived and all of us would have died today, it would have pleased you well. Now, I do believe the king needed to hear that, maybe not at that moment, but he did need to hear that eventually. Death is inevitable for all of us. Grieving is essential, but moving on is vital. When my brother died, we didn't know how to handle it. I looked at my mother. She was grief-stricken. She aged, I thought, 10 years in a week. It took a toll on her. The family gathered together. We picked out the casket. We prepared his funeral. We buried him. We got back together and we mourned, and we were like this for a couple weeks, and I will never forget one of my older brothers, who was also mourning but very pragmatic, gave some needed advice. He stood before us one afternoon and he said, we have all suffered a tragic loss. I am not minimizing it. We have grieved deeply, but now it's time to move on and to live our lives. And that was good advice, and we took it. That is, we took it all except my mother. She did not take it well. She listened, but she didn't want to talk about Bob. She didn't want to display his photograph in the house. 
And I remember coming home and noticing pictures of me and pictures of Rick and pictures of Jim, and there were no pictures of Bob. Now, I grew up with Bob. He was my closest brother, two years apart. We did everything together. Suddenly, no pictures of him. Too painful, she said. Don't want the remembrance. And this went on for some time until another appointment. My aunt came from out of town, walked in the house, cornered my mother lovingly, and said, I notice you have no pictures of all of your sons. You have your three sons, but where's pictures of Bob? And she broke down. She said, I can't do it. This was years after. And she said to my mother, you need to put those pictures up. He deserves a place in your home. It'll help you work through it, and your family needs to see it as well. She did, and it started another healing process for her especially. You see, I know this was too soon perhaps for David to hear, but there does come a time when David needs to hear it. Grieving is essential, but there is a time to move on, and grieving can sometimes consume and taint everything and everyone around you. That's why you need to face it head on. It's one of the healthiest things. Now, you may not like Joab for what he said, but I contend he's a friend because had not Joab said this, even though he's a little bit insensitive, David would have had a worse problem on his hands than he already had. He would have had a whole nation against him when they were so loyal to him and behind him. He needed to hear this. Proverbs 27, hear, hear it. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know, an enemy will just tell you whatever you want to hear. A friend will tell you what you need to hear. Oscar Wilde said, a friend will stab you in the front. An enemy will stab you in the back. A friend will stab you right up front. David, boom, you need to hear this, buddy. It's time to move on. Verse 6, look at it. That, that's an interesting concept, don't you think? In that you love your, friend, you, you love your enemies and you hate your friends. You think about it, Absalom... Let's see, he murdered one of David's sons, he usurped his kingdom, uh, he raped his concubines. He was an enemy. He wanted to kill his father. Oh yeah, David grieved and he should have grieved. It is normal, it is natural, but what Joab is doing is framing for him the larger picture. The larger picture. You're a king now. This is a nation. They need your support. They need your encouragement. But you know, I've discovered that concept is a concept that I, I see it today. I know people today who love their enemies and hate their friends. They hate God, who's their biggest friend, and they're on the devil's side. Satan hates them, wants them in hell. I know people who have walked with the Lord, then they backslide, and they walk away from and treat their Christian friends with despite and seem to love this new cool crowd that they once hung out with that could really care less about their soul. They walk away from church. They walk away from parents who love them. It's an ironic thing to hate those who love you. David needed to hear that. Now therefore, arise. Go and speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord... If you do not go out, 
Not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. He's given it to him straight on the rocks. And the king arose and sat in the gate. Now that was a sign of, I'm back, I'm here, I'm visible, uh, I'm done with my mourning, I'm here for you, I celebrate the victory with you. And they told all the people, saying, there is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? There's no one on the throne. No one is the leader. The one they followed, Absalom, is dead, so there's a vacancy in leadership. David was the king, was ousted out of Jerusalem, and the people who followed Absalom are realizing, hey, the guy we followed is gone. And the other people, as they rallied together, why do you say nothing about bringing the King David back to the throne in the city? I read that, and I couldn't help but apply that question to the church. Why do you say nothing about bringing back the king, King Jesus? You know that King Jesus has been kicked out in a lot of areas out of his own church? Uh, there's people who call themselves churches, and they got steeples and everything, man. I mean, they look real churchy. And they dare to take songs out of their hymnals that speak about saved by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, that's too bloody. It's too gross. Remove it. Take it out of the hymnal. We don't want a bloody religion. Nor, some of these churches will say, do we want to preach that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation? They're sort of universalist in their approach. And so they get together for church and they sing, I don't know, Inagata Davida or whatever. Just songs that make them feel good and talk about peace, love, the environment, humanity, Dogs, cats. Bring the king back. Let the king reign over his church. Preach Christ. Else it's not a church. Now, I also want to apply that question to us personally. It's easy to take pot shots at organizations. Maybe it's time for you in your own personal life to bring the king back. Maybe like the church of Ephesus, you've left your first love. You remember that story. Jesus wrote him a, a postcard. He said, you're a great church. You do a lot of great stuff. Nevertheless, you know, you don't want to hear Jesus say those words to you, do you? You're great. Everything's good. But I have something against you. Oh, no. You know, if my friend says, I have something against you. Okay, I can handle it. But when God, when Jesus says to me, I've got something against you, better listen. This is what he says. Because you have left your first love. Not lost your first love. You know, where's Jesus? Lost him somewhere around here. 
You left your first love. It implies a process, a slow erosion. And I discovered in the Greek language when that is, is written down, there's an emphasis on the word first. You have left your love, the very first one, the priority. He's not speaking about loving people, but you've, you've, you've left your love for God, that simple, beautiful relationship that you once had with Jesus. Hey, think back. Go ahead, think back. That first day, first night, first week, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master, I bet you are remembering a week of excitement, joy. Your life could be summed up in one phrase, Jesus Christ. You loved him. You thought about nothing else. It was like a honeymoon. Ah, Jesus. He's filled my heart. But what happens to some of us as we mature... And we learn doctrine. We become crusty, dry. We know the facts more than we know the Lord personally. It's all head. And it's nothing really. That, oh, we go through the motions. We've just left the emotion. In fact, we decry emotion. Oh, these emotional type people that get all emotional over God. Oh, I'm more mature. Maybe you are. Maybe you've approached it in a more temperate manner, and I applaud you for your maturity. Or that could be a smokescreen for, I'm stale. I've stagnated. I've left my first love. But it just sounds better to say, I'm mature. If that's maturity, I don't want it. Isn't it funny how we, and, and probably most of you are exempt from all this. I'm speaking to holy people, after all. You do. You love the Lord, and you show it. I saw you at Easter. The stadium was a buzz, wasn't it? And we were excited. It was early in the morning. People were clapping and cheering. Now, an unbeliever would look at you Easter morning, getting up that early, 20,000 people in a stadium, sh shouting, hooping it up, freezing cold, going, Oh, no. Look at them. Bunch of fanatics. <laughs> Yet, the day before, they'd be in the very same stadium when a little ball gets thrown up in the air and caught by somebody in a goofy-looking suit. And he runs around with a little ball, and they go, Aah! and they'll call us fanatics. Odd. Do you need to bring back the king? Do you need to come back to a place where that first love is restored? And Jesus tells us how to do. Remember, think back. Go back in your mind's eye to that night, to that day, to that period when Jesus was first in your heart, in your life, and what that meant to you and how you felt. Get in touch with that. And do your first works again, he said. Go back and do those things that happened at first. You know what? Like simple devotions, quiet time. We can trace a lot of people's problems back to that root. They come in for counseling, and we invariably go through the problem. We just, we at some time in the session want to ask them, how's your devotional life with the Lord? Oh, well, um, I do have one. 
I don't have quiet time as much as I used to. I mean, I don't, I don't like wake up every morning and read the Bible and pray. Really? Well, I used to, but, you know, I don't have the time. Really? How many movies did you see the last month? Remember from where you've fallen, repent and do those first works over again. Bring the king back. Maybe it's time for some of us to bring him back, enshrine him as king in the city of our own heart. Well, let me kind of sum up a part, can I? Verse 11 down, this is what happens, and you'll see the, the problem. David's sort of sick of Joab. He listens to him. He does what he says, but he's just, for some reason, tired of him. Joab's killed a bunch of people, kind of hard on him in his time of grief. David replaces Joab, the commander of the armed forces, with a guy named Amasa. I have a question mark with that because Amasa was... <laughs> The guy Absalom, the rebel son, appointed as commander over his army. So he takes this guy, now that Absalom's done, and says, you're in charge. Joab isn't going to like that. In fact, Joab's going to do something about that. You'll see as we go on. Um, then, in verse 15, the king returned and came to the Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to escort the king across the Jordan. So, can you picture it? They're on the other side of the Jordan River in the Transjordan, the modern country of Jordan, for modern purposes. He goes back down to the river to cross back over into Judah, get on his way back to Jerusalem. He's met there by a few people. First one, look at verse uh, 18. The ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought was good. Now, Shimei, you could say uh, Shimei or Shimei or however you want to pronounce it. It's a Hebrew word. It's hard to pronounce it. Probably the best stab at it would be Shimei. Anyway, do you remember who he was? He was that foul-mouthed Benjamite who, when David was leaving the country, was on the Mount of Olives throwing rocks and dust in the air saying, God is judging you, you creep. I'm paraphrasing just a bit. You shed blood and you stole the kingdom out of Saul's hand, who was a Benjamite. This is why the guys ticked off at him. And he was cursing the king. And one of his men said, let me handle this. I'll just go cut off his head. David said, no, don't cut off his head. Let him go. He wants to get ahead in life. Let him alone. And he didn't do anything. Now he's coming back over. And the same guy is there to greet him. And notice this. He said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity on me or, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am today, first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeroiah, this is Joab's brother. Now watch what he does, and you'll say, oh yeah, he is related to Joab. Answered and said, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? 
that you should be adversaries to me today. Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For I do not, for do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shemei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. He forgave him. He forgave him. I'm not going to take long in applying this, but all of you can think right now of somebody who said something to you. You hated him for it ever since. Every time you see him, you have that look, that grudge, that attitude. How about just stopping and go, I just want you to know it's done, it's over, I forgive you, I love you. I'll tell you what, you'll diffuse a lot of junk. And that person won't have the power over you anymore. Next one is Mephibosheth. He's the boy wonder. He's the son of Jonathan whom David adopted. Now he's down at the Jordan River. He had to be carried. He was a cripple. Ziba was the guy who was the caretaker and servant to Mephibosheth. Ziba told a false story a couple chapters back. He said, David, I'm going with you, man. And David said, well, where's Mephibosheth, your lord? He said, oh, he's a traitor. Now, that wasn't the truth. Mephibosheth says, I really wasn't a traitor. I just, remember, I'm crippled. I couldn't follow you. Ziba left me. So David divides that inheritance. Then verse 31, interesting guy, an 80-year-old guy. Uh, I'm not going to give him any other name but that. An elderly gentleman. And Barzillai, the Gileadite. See, there's another name for your list of names. Barzillai, the Gileadite, came down from Rogalim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and had provided the king with supplies while he stayed in Manaim, the Transjordan. For he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me. I'll provide for you while you're with me in Jerusalem. Isn't that a kind gesture? You were kind to me. You're an old guy. You come and let me take care of you in your latter days. Barzillai said to the king, How long do I have to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Happy birthday, Barzillai. Can I discern between the good and the bad? Can your servant taste what I eat and drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord, the king? Pretty practical guy, don't you think? Hey, David, you're going to go up to the city and have fun and rejoice and throw parties. I'm old. I can't even taste that stuff. And the music, I'm going to have to say, I can't understand that modern music. What are they singing? So you know what? I'll just hinder your party. You go on, and I'll stay back home, and I'll just I'll kick the bucket over here at home. Summing it up for you, what he's saying. Maybe taking liberty, but I am. Verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal, and Himham, there's another great name for you, Daria, went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all of David's men with him across the Jordan? 
So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is a close relative of ours. Why are you then angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, we have 10 shares in the king. Remember, there's 10 tribes up north versus two tribes down in the south of Judah. Therefore, we have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Let me explain what I see happening. It's going to help in this chapter and the next. Anytime you have a situation like this, you have what we should call a leadership vacuum. Think about it. The king was in charge. He set the policies. He gave the direction. He led the armies. Whether you liked the king's policies or you didn't like the king's policies, at least you know where you were going. The king was gone. A new king was put in his place. A hostile takeover, Absalom. A lot of people didn't like his principles, but he was the king. He did set direction for a short period of time. Now he's dead. And the king isn't yet back in Jerusalem. And there's this massive instability. Anytime there is an absence of true, strong leadership, there's instability. Always. That's why the government always swears in a vice president at the absence of a president, like an assassination. When Kennedy was shot, Johnson immediately took the oath of office and became the acting president of the United States, filling out the term. Because we understand people become unstable without a leader. The nation's unstable. There's ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Not everybody liked David. Not everybody liked Absalom. But we need a king. Now there's an argument, a spat. Now keep this in mind if you want to know why the kingdom split later on, and we'll refer you back to this when we get to 1 Kings chapter 12, why did the kingdom split? It starts here. It started here. In southern India, there's a huge tree called the banyan tree. And down in southern India, they have a proverb that says, the ground underneath the banyan tree is always barren. In other words, the ground underneath the banyan tree is always barren. <laughs> and this is why they say that. The tree is interesting. It's, it grows a massive trunk. It spreads its shade, its leaves, so dense the sun can't get through. It spreads laterally. It drops air roots, roots that go out into the air, and it grows. The roots dangle and grow into the air and develop secondary, tertiary trunk systems that go into the ground. One banyan tree can grow so large it can cover an entire acre of land. Can you imagine? One tree covering an entire acre of land. But the ground underneath the tree is scorched. And if the tree, and when the tree dies, the ground underneath that whole acre is barren. So you have this massive tree, but the ground doesn't grow anything. It's barren underneath it. It's a shade for people, for animals, for critters. 
but the ground is barren and scorched. David's kingdom, his reign, was like this banyan tree that stretched over territory and people and policies, and lots of folks took shade underneath it. But when you remove David, the nation was scorched, was barren. There's this leadership vacuum that the people are experiencing here. So what happens? Well, a guy takes advantage of it. Just as Absalom took advantage by stealing the hearts of the way, uh, away from the people of Israel, from the king, to himself, there's another guy named Sheba. You're going to read about it in the next chapter, and we'll touch on him tonight. Sheba, who is a Benjamite, who wants to separate from the kingdom. So they have this argument. There happened to be, verse 1, a rebel, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet. Whenever there's a leadership vacuum, you'll always find people who toot their own horn. Always. Look at me. And he said, we have no part in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. David knows he better act swiftly or he will have a civil war on his hands that is worse than the coup with Absalom. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. You know, civil war is nasty in a nation or in a church. I don't know if you've ever been through a church split. I've never personally been in a church that split, but I've had acquaintances with churches that have split right down the middle. It's nasty, and it's often the worst time in that church's life, those individuals' lives. It puts a great stress on them. David knows that this is nasty business, that he has a civil war on his hands. And this is a preview of coming attractions. Remember I mentioned 1 Kings chapter 12? Let me paint the picture and let me tell you what was said. And as I do, keep in mind what we just read in verse 2. Some years later, David's dead, Solomon's dead, his son becomes king. What was his name? Rehoboam. Rehoboam's the king of Israel. People come to Rehoboam, pleading for relief, saying, look, Rehoboam, your dad was pretty tough. He taxed us, and he was very oppressive. Lighten the load. Lighten the burden, would you? So Rehoboam, being a neophyte, being a young kid, not knowing how to govern anybody at all, says, I'll be back in three days with my answer. So he consults wisely with older men, wise men, the council of the king. They knew the policies. They knew the government. What should I do? They said, I'll tell you what you got to do, Rehoboam. You got to go back to the people and ease the burden. Love them. Serve them. They'll be loyal to you forever. Okay. He listens to their advice. Then he goes to his buddies, young as he is, friends he graduated high school with, hung out with, rough crowd. He brought them in to be his advisors. So what do you think I had to do? They said, you ought to be tough, man. You ought to show them who's boss. You're the king. You got to be macho. You go back and tell the people, listen, um, my little finger will be thicker than my father's waist. Uh, he uh, beat you with whips. I'll whip you with scorpions. You know, just be tough. Say, I'm going to be twice as hard. So he said it. Instead of being a loving servant, he came back and says, you think my dad was tough. You ain't seen nothing yet. When he said those words, Jeroboam, the son of Nabot, 
said almost verbatim what you read here. He said, we have no inheritance in the kingdom of David to your tents, O Israel. And at that moment, the kingdom split. There were ten tribes in the north that split from the two tribes in the south. Now you had the sovereign nation of Israel and the sovereign kingdom of Judah. And a civil war broke out. The seeds of that civil war happened right here when there was a leadership vacuum some years before. So every man, verse 2, every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But all the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remain loyal to the king. So what does David do? Well, David has replaced Joab with who? Amasa. As the guy in charge of the troops. So he says, okay, buddy, you go out and get this Sheba character. Take care of this rebellion for me. Yes, sir. But he delayed. He took longer than he should have taken. Joab would have been right on it and assembled the troops. And this guy... Uh, was re retarded, I mean, not mentally retarded, he, he retarded, he, he waited with his action. Now, whenever you give an order, if you're a boss, and you say, I want something done, and if they don't do it when you ask them to do it, it doesn't inspire future confidence. You back off a little bit. David wasn't sure about this guy, and no doubt regrets his decision. Joab takes the matter in his own hands says, you know what, I'm tired of being replaced by this guy who doesn't know what he's doing. I know what I'm doing. So, verse 8, they were there at the large stone, which is in Gibeon. I don't know where that is, but somewhere. Verse 9, Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab, whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. He was scared to death. And Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway, and when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. And when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted, when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Question. Why did we need to know those details? Why not struck him and he died? Why the entrails pouring out? Why the wallowing in the blood? Why paint the mental picture? Well, I thought about that. And I think it's because, number one, the Bible's just that honest. It's one of the integrity marks of the Bible. Instead of glossing over things and telling us all the good points of a certain biography, it tells us the naked truth. Number two could be to gross us out. <laughs> no, no, seriously, follow me for a minute. We're about, we're about done here. I don't want to lose you. Sin is gross. Jealousy is grotesque. It destroys things. It destroys lives. Maybe it's to, as we read, form such an impression that we go, oh, that's horrible. Yes, it is. Just like when Jesus said, you know, it would be better for that person to 
cut off his hand, gouge out his eye, cast it from him. Remember that strong imagery? Why would Jesus say that? That's gross. Yeah, he wants you to think sin is gross. It's grotesque. Especially here when you have virtually brothers. You know that Joab and Amasal were cousins? What does the psalm say? Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren to dwell together in unity. You could also say how gross and grotesque it is when brothers don't dwell together in unity. And this is the result of it. I read an article, and, and I kept it. Um, you remember back when there was the problems with the PTL club and the lawsuits and the televangelists um, suing each other and calling each other names? The name of the article, I'll never forget it, it says, People Who Love is the name of the article. People Who Love. The article began by saying, TV evangelists express their affection but throw bombshells at one another. The article went on. I can almost remember it verbatim. It says, No word is used more often in the battle of the televangelists than the word love. Next word, however, and it lists all of the items these guys were showering against each other. Well, think of David's life, would you? Kind of summing it up, we're closing. What did Nathan say to him? The sword will never depart, right, from your house. The sword will never depart. David killed Uriah, but he lost his son Amnon, he lost his son Absalom, he lost Abner, he lost Amasa, his nephew. And here's the point. What does Galatians tell us? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And he goes on to qualify it. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. Now think about that. Usually we think there is an equal reaping in the amount we sow. The point of the passage is whatever you sow, you'll reap more. That's the law of the harvest. You sow something, you reap much more. You might sow to the flesh, but you won't reap the flesh. You'll reap corruption. You might sow to the Spirit, but you just won't sow spiritual stuff. You'll reap everlasting life. And that's how farming works. You throw a handful of seed, get an acre full of produce. Hosea 8 says, my people have sown the wind, they reap the whirlwind. Whatever you sow, you gain much more. So if you sow in areas of the flesh, in what you see and what you hear that's wrong, it can soon get out of control and overtake you. And so it is with the Spirit. If you sow to the Spirit, what you will reap is years and years of a harvest. Here's my point in closing. I sound like Paul, don't I? Finally, my brethren, then he goes on for another chapter. <laughs> well, he's a good example. <laughs> Walk, travel carefully. Travel carefully. Every day, you're on a journey. And that day gets added to the next day, gets added to the next day, and soon it's a month, soon it's a year, and soon, soon, you look back. And there's not much time ahead. There's a lot back. You don't want to have to live in regret. That's why Paul says, walk circumspectly, carefully. Watch each step. Make every decision count, because it will count.
Finally, my brethren, there was a story of a ship. In the days before modern navigation equipment, before GPS, the old ships had a compass. Some of them had two. One at the wheel where the captain could run the wheel and watch the compass for direction and another compass on top of the mast, a sailor had to climb up to view it. A traveler aboard the ship said, why the compass on the mast? That's no fun. You want to look at this one. He said, well, young man, this vessel, this boat is made out of metal largely. And oftentimes we don't get an accurate reading because this compass is affected by its surroundings. So when we need to know what direction to go, we always steer by the one on top. That's what I want to leave us with after looking at David's life, because the rest is an appendix. We'll cover the rest of the book very quickly. Steer your life by the compass on top. You're in this world. You're a citizen of the earth, of this town, of this country. You've got to be responsible. But there's another compass. You're another citizen of another country, kingdom of heaven. And you want to get your directions not from your surroundings, not from your buddies, not from MTV, not from all the junk that everybody says you have to live like, but the compass on top. How, the, how about this? Here's the compass on top. Climb up there and read it. Oh, I don't want to get out of bed. It's too early to get up there and read that Bible. Travel well. Heavenly Father. We have reviewed a very exciting and tragic life. We have looked at a man who is called a man after your own heart, who toward the end of his life, by choices that were made and consequences that were reaped from what he had sown, there's a whirlwind of deep distress and regret. And we take it to heart because your word says that we should, that all of these things were written to be examples to us. And each one of us, Lord, we make daily choices. And the choice that we make on one day is imprinted and will remain with us for years and years and years and years to come. Some of us have not made wise choices. Others of us need your wisdom tonight and tomorrow and the next few days making crucial choices. Help us. Help us to steer by the compass above, not by the surroundings. And Lord, the root of it, I believe, for so many of us is getting back to our first love and placing the emphasis in the right place. Help us to do that, Lord to love you madly. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.